0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Moss, and uh, I work with a campus ministry here in town called The Table, a uh, ministry that is supported by Sunnybrook and that works pretty much hand-in-hand hand with Sunnybrook in reaching and discipling college students. We kind of work, uh, myself, Scott Irwin, Rachel, Vincent, all kind of as one team uh, doing ministry here. But, but I get to work alongside the staff here and, and, and get to work up at uh, office here, all those things. Every now and then they even let me up on stage to preach and, and I always appreciate that and, and I'm grateful for an opportunity to do that today to, to come and, and open up Matthew with you guys. Jim is... Um, in Canada visiting family today, and so that's why, that's why he's gone, and I get to step in and, and do this in his place. Um, so last week, I, I had this opportunity to, to uh, officiate a wedding for some friends of mine who, who also happen to be former students of ours at the table, Chase and Jenny Cothman, and they're, they're members here at Sunnybrook, so some of you may know them. Um, But I got to do the wedding for them, and and it was a a great wedding, and and one that I really enjoyed. Chase and Jenny are both very kingdom-minded people and gospel-oriented, and they wanted their ceremony to be gospel-oriented, so I got to preach at that one, and I, I love getting to do ceremonies like that. But one of my favorite things about their wedding last week is that child care was provided. And that, that was like a home run. That's, that's about as good as it gets right there. We were so relieved to, to find out when we got there that there's a place for the kids to go because... With our three kids, six and five and three, it's difficult enough for Amy and I together to kind of corral them in the pews and keep them still during a service. But, but when I'm up here on the stage and it's just Amy, that, that feels almost impossible. And so it was great to show up and know that, that they could be taken care of there and Amy could just sit and enjoy. Um, and, and then we went to the reception and there was no childcare at the reception, and, and um, we weren't there for super long. I mean, we were there for like an hour and a half, a couple hours. We did not stay for the whole time. But I will tell you that in the period that we were there, the Moss family left their mark on that wedding reception. <laughs> uh, people, people knew us by the time we left. Um, It started when when we're we're all kind of hanging out in there and they're dancing stuff while while we're waiting for the, the bride and the groom to take their pictures. And then when Chase and Jenny come in, you know, they announce, you know, please join me in welcoming for the second time Mr. and Mrs. Chase and Jenny Coffin. And they walk in and everybody applauds and they make their way out to the dance floor and the DJ says, Now would everyone please clear the dance floor for the bride and groom to share in their first dance? Would everyone please clear the dance floor so the bride and groom could join in their first dance? Can I have everyone off the dance floor, please? And I'm going, dude, we get it. Everyone off the dance floor. But but apparently we we didn't all get it because when I looked up kind of over the shoulders of some people, I saw my three-year-old daughter Hadley soaking in the spotlight as the whole... Whole floor had cleared for her out on the, on the stage, ready to show off her dance moves. So I run out, and I grab her, and I, I get her off, and we kind of usher to the side. And then later, we're going through the meal line. It was, it was like buffet style, and, and the food was amazing. We are walking through, and at the end of it, there was kind of a little tea dispenser there. And it was one of those, you know, fancy ones that you twist to kind of get it to open and start to pour, and then twist it off to make it stop. And Hudson figured out the first part of that. Um, but not the second part. And so he got the thing just and the tea starts coming out and he can't get it to stop. And so it starts to fill up over his cup and he can't get it off so he turn, moves the cup and now it's just pouring onto the white beautiful tablecloth there and still can't get it stopped. So now like, we got a waterfall effect coming off the table onto the floor and Amy or Scott or, or someone sees it and gets it shut off, gets it taken care of. And then a little bit later we're sitting down and we're eating and I don't think that this one was our fault. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't think this was us, but on us, but Hudson kind of slightly bumped the table while we were eating, and when he did that, the table legs on the other side of the table just gave out, and that whole thing collapsed, and it was a Mexican theme, so enchiladas and salsa are flying everywhere, tea is running down the table, glass is breaking, everybody's looking over at this crazy circus taking place in the middle, of dinner, and what kind of, hey, what's up, and and a little bit later, I go, I got the marriage certificate, and I got to get Chase and Jenny to sign that, and the best man, the maid of honor, so I'm finding them, round them up, and and Amy's over talking to a friend somewhere at a table when somebody comes up to her and says, hey, is, is that your daughter over there? And, and Amy looks up to see Hadley doing the potty dance, you know, out in the middle. I got to go, and yelling, I got to go pee, pee, you know. And so Amy runs over and sprints and grabs her and gets her in the bathroom and puts her on the toilet about three seconds too late. And so there's a mess in the bathroom that Amy's got to clean up, and she gets that all cleaned up. And that's about the time that we decide. Probably time for the mom's family to go home. So we, 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 we wrap it all up and, and head home that night. But, but we made our presence felt at that wedding reception. And I can, I can tell you that people on that night got a pretty good glimpse into the beauty and chaos that is the Moss household on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you could actually, you, can, you could tell quite a bit about a family or about a person as an individual. You could tell quite a bit about them by by watching them celebrate things, by watching them at social occasions or parties, but by watching the the way that they celebrate at parties and events or the kinds of things that they celebrate. You can tell a lot about a person by the kind of people they celebrate with. And that's true about Jesus. The Gospels record Jesus sitting around a table, sharing a meal with people quite a bit, actually. It happens a lot in there, but there are eight specific occasions in the Gospels in which Jesus is actually invited to some kind of dinner party or feast or wedding banquet. Eight different times he goes to and in each one of those occasions, as Brady mentioned, when we watch those parties unfold, we learn a little bit of something about Jesus, about his identity, about his character, about his purpose. We also, at most of those parties, someone always leaves ticked, okay? It's kind of how how things worked a lot of times when Jesus showed up at a party. Somebody's not happy when it's over. And we get to see this unfold in our story today. We're in this section, Matthew 8 through 13, the present kingdom, in which Matthew is giving us a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that is being revealed through Jesus and his work. Specifically in chapters 8 and 9, the kingdom is being revealed through this series of miracles that Matthew records, where Jesus is healing the sick and raising the dead, and he's um, casting out demons and calming storms, all kind of showing this restoration that is going to be taking place in the new kingdom. But but, but Matthew does something interesting. There are nine different miracles in chapters 8 through 9. And sandwiched right in the middle of them, perfectly symmetrically, you have these two texts on discipleship. And so it goes three miracles, discipleship text, three miracles, discipleship text, three miracles. They fall right there in the middle. The first discipleship text was in Matthew 8, I believe 18 through 20. And and Steve preached on that a couple weeks ago on the cost of discipleship, where different people come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. And he says, not so fast. You may not know what you're getting into and kind of lays out some of the costs of that. And then last week, we saw those middle three miracles where Jesus calms the storm and then casts out demons and then he heals a paralytic. But, but coupled with that healing, Jesus forgives that man's sins, which becomes very controversial, and that kind of feeds into our text today. The text that we're looking at is, is a recounting of a discipleship calling. That is, Jesus coming up to a person and saying, follow me, come be my disciple. Now, this isn't the first discipleship calling recorded in the book of Matthew, but it is a very interesting one for two reasons. First, because of who he calls And second, because of how that person responds. So let's take a look at it together. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, goes like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is the Matthew. The one writing this gospel for us is the one in this story. So it is autobiographical, as Matthew records, his um, encounter with Jesus that brought him to him. And so Jesus, or Matthew's recording this, and he says, Jesus comes along and sees Matthew at a tax collector's booth, which means he is a tax collector. And if you grew up in church at all, going to Sunday school, singing songs about Zacchaeus, you know pretty well that, that tax collectors were not real, highly thought of back then, that people were not real fond of tax collectors. And more than likely you were told it's because those tax collectors used to rip people off and cheat them. That You know, if you, owed, if you owed Rome $100, the tax collector would come and charge you 115 and then pocket the difference for himself. And that does seem to be the case. It seems that there were many tax collectors who were ripping people off, but the problem runs deeper than that. Yes, it's true that tax collectors were greedy, and it's true that they were cheaters. But, but more than that, they were traitors. They were Jews who were taking advantage of their own people's oppression in order to get rich themselves. Jews who began to work for the pagan Gentile government, collecting taxes from the Jews, giving it to the government so that that government could continue to oppress their own people. Imagine for a second ISIS one day coming and conquering America, coming and taking control And they move in to occupy the city of Stillwater. As they do that, they behead or crucify anyone who tries to resist. And the anger and the sorrow and the frustration that builds up in you towards this cruel people ruling over you. And then imagine your neighbor down the street one day realizing that he could make a buck by switching sides. And he goes to work for them. And as everyone else in your neighborhood struggles to get along day by day, you see this neighbor's house getting bigger and nicer, fancier cars in the driveway all the time, all, all because he decided to turn on all his own people just to get rich. When you can picture that, you get a little bit of an idea of the way that the Jews felt about the tax collectors. And even more than that, because they were consistently dealing with Gentiles, they were considered unclean. Their money was unclean, so you don't want to be around them because that might make you ceremonially impure, unfit to go to the temple or to be in synagogue. Tax collectors were not allowed to attend synagogues. Their money was not wanted in the offerings. They were not allowed to testify in Jewish courts. They weren't trustworthy enough. They were consistently held up as the picture of someone who is the lowest of the low. Jesus himself, actually, on multiple occasions, when he wants to find a picture of someone who is like the worst kind of person, when he wants to represent that to the people of Israel, the, the, the phrase he uses a lot is tax collector. And that's why it would have been so shocking, so surprising to see what Jesus does next. It says he saw Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Come be my disciple. Come be my student. Learn from me and carry on the work that I'm doing. And Matthew, he rose and followed him. Now, this would have been, like I said, shocking for Jesus to do this. As he makes his way to the tax booth, most people would probably assume that he would try to avoid it. But to go over there, they must assume he's going there to rebuke this wicked man. And instead, when Jesus opens his mouth, he says, I want you on my team. And there probably would have been a gasp that goes through the crowd when he says those things. But there probably would have been a second round of gasps when Matthew just stands up and does it, goes with him. Luke records it this way, he rose up and left everything and followed him. Make no mistake, tax collecting was was not a popular career, but it was a lucrative one. And Matthew is leaving a lot on the table. Peter, James, and John, they're fishermen. And listen, if if this thing with Jesus following him doesn't work out, you can always go back to fishing. Heck, you might even be able to fish a little bit on the side as you're doing the whole following Jesus thing. Doesn't work that way with tax collecting. You can't be a follower of Jesus and a tax collector at the same time. And more than likely, you can't ever go back. Matthew likely paid a pretty high price to get the right to collect taxes in this area. And you can be sure that there was probably a line of people waiting to get in and take that spot when he left. He's leaving everything he's got. He's leaving the only trade he's ever known. He gives it all up to go after this Jesus guy. So this story leaves us with two really important questions. The first is, why would Jesus call Matthew, this man, this worst of the worst, to come be with him? And second, why would Matthew respond like this so quickly, so willing to give it all up to follow Jesus? We're given the answer through the description of a couple of different parties, a couple of different feasts that take place here. The first one is at Matthew's house. It goes like this in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, that is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So after Matthew is called by Jesus, he throws this big party with Jesus and his disciples and he invites all of his friends over. The only problem is Matthew doesn't really have any friends except for, well, tax collectors and other people of questionable character. Other people that, you know, no one else will hang out with except for, of course, tax collectors. It's so all of these people gather around and it's Matthew and it's his friends and it's Jesus and it's probably a group of very uncomfortable disciples sitting in the middle of this party. When the Pharisees catch wind of it, well, that's when things get a little bit controversial. That's when things get a little bit heated because you see, in Jesus' culture, you do not share a meal with just anyone. It's not how it works. You just go to McDonald's and grab food with a friend or a business. You, you go, you eat meals with your family. You eat meals with your close friends. You eat meals with, with those who are your people, the ones that you accept, the ones that, that you would say, I, I, I'm with you. I would spend time with you. I, I enjoy you. I associate myself with you. I have some friends who are missionaries in Turkey, over there in that part of the world, the Near East. And, uh, and, and they moved over to Turkey. They moved in this apartment complex, and most of the people there live in these giant apartments, especially in, in the middle of cities. And, and so they moved in this apartment complex, and every one of the complexes has, has its own doorman or, or custodian or janitor who takes care of the building. for them. Shortly after moving into that apartment, they invited the doorman and his family over for dinner. And, and the response that they got from the other tenants in the building was pretty much all the same. Why? What are you doing, man? No, no, we, we don't invite the doorman over for dinner. That's not how this works. He's, he's not one of us. He takes care of us. He takes care of our stuff, but he's not, he's not one of us. That's not how this works. And it was a glimpse in just a small way into the kind of culture that Jesus was living in. Only it, was, it ran deeper than that in first century Palestine because there it wasn't just an economic thing and it wasn't just a social thing. It was a morality thing. It was a righteousness thing. That to associate myself with unrighteous, ungodly people says certain things about me. As I said, it implies that Jesus accepts these people and it even applies a little bit to people that, that maybe he accepts the way they're living not saying that that's what Jesus was doing. I'm just saying that's how it would have looked. And so, of course, the Pharisees catch wind of this, and it confirms all the things they thought they knew about this man. I mean, how could a guy who, who claims to be following God, who claims to be a worshiper of God, actually spend his time eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, and drunkards? I mean, this tells us all we need to know about him. After all, A man is known by the company he keeps, right? With Jesus, that is actually more true than they know. And they go to his disciples and they begin to confront him. What in the world do you think you're doing eating with these people? Jesus overhears and this is how he responds. But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the reason, Jesus says, that he goes and eats with Matthew, and the reason that he would go and call Matthew to be with him is because Matthew is exactly the kind of guy that he came for. Matthew's exactly the person who came for. This isn't an anomaly. This isn't a deviation from the norm. No, Matthew exemplifies, maybe better than any other of Jesus' disciples, Matthew exemplifies the exact kind of person that Jesus came after. Those whose sin is so explicit, whose sin is right out in your face to the point that they can't pretend otherwise. He came for the messy ones. The people who don't have the ability to clean themselves up, to pull their stuff together, and certainly don't have the ability to make people think they are either. In fact, I think that might be the key. I don't think that Jesus is saying, when he says, I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. He's not saying to the Pharisees, because you're righteous, you have no need of me. Now, you, you can't read all the other statements that Jesus makes about the Pharisees and come to that conclusion. He's getting at something deeper about the way they see themselves. There might be no other story or text that, that illustrates the truths that are going on in Matthew 9, like this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Luke 18, chapter 9, this is what Jesus says. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. That's gonna come up in just a minute. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Yes, it's true that Matthew is messed up. It's true that he's a sinful person. It's true that he's broken and that he needs to repent and change his ways. But the advantage for Matthew is that there's no denying it in his life. There's no way for him to get around that truth. The Pharisees, on the other hand, have the ability to clean themselves up on the outside in order to fool everyone around them and often fool themselves as well. And for that reason, they're at a severe disadvantage. And Jesus says, you're far worse off than you think. He says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea 6, Hosea 6, 6. But the way he introduces it, go and learn what this means. That's actually a common expression that rabbis would say to their students when teaching them. Hey, go and learn this. So what Jesus is doing is he's, this is basically a slap in the face. He's taking these experts in the law, these men who have devoted their lives to studying God's word, and Jesus is talking to them like they're his students. It's kind of the equivalent of talking to a PhD in mathematics and saying, hey, tell you what, go brush up on your multiplication tables and come talk to me. This would have stung. And he quotes to them from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6 is written to a people, the Israelites, who were pretty good at following all the ritual parts of their religion, offering sacrifices at the temple, bringing offerings, celebrating holy days and festivals, maybe even fasting and joining things like that. But those people were following this while neglecting the heart of what the law was all about. That is, the law was designed as an expression of the character and the heart of God, love, mercy, justice, truth. And they were forgetting all these things. In fact, while they were offering sacrifices to God, they were also worshiping idols, engaged in all the things that went along with that. And they were forgetting the core of it because they were doing all the rituals. Jesus takes that same statement and he applies it to the Pharisees. He says, oh, listen, I I know. I know that you've done everything you can to try and avoid being like that. You don't want to be the idolater. You don't want to be the one joining in pagan practices. And so you separate yourself from it as much as possible. But Jesus says, you're falling right back into the same pit as them. Watching all your rituals and all your traditions and forgetting the heart of God in the process when you would relegate these people, these sinners, too far beyond you even spend time with. I desire mercy, God says, more than just your sacrifices. This is a bit of a side note, a bit of a tangent. One of the things that Jesus gets accused of most often in the Gospels is that he's always hanging out with sinners. He spends too much time with all those people of bad repute, of all those people with questionable character and morality. And something about that just doesn't look right. Something about that just doesn't smell right for Jesus to spend all that time with tax collectors and prostitutes. There's something not right about this man to be doing that. Can I confess to you that I don't know that anybody has ever made that accusation of me. That you know what Drew's problem is, is? He spends too much time with messy people. He's always hanging out with with Sinners, he's always hanging out with those people who would never want to walk inside of a church building. People don't say that about me, and I don't hear that said about a lot of us, honestly, about the church at large very often. And I don't have this all worked out. I know, I know that this is messy and I know that it's complicated, and you know, that, that we need the church, and we need to be together as a church, but but I also know that that Jesus says he came for the sick, that Jesus said he came for the messed up, for those who seem beyond grace, who seem beyond the ability to reform or repent. Jesus came for those people, and and we are the church, we are his hands and feet, we are his body, and and it seems that we ought to be, to some degree, accused of the same kinds of things that Jesus was. That's another sermon for another day, but I want to just kind of Put that out there and ask what the Spirit might be saying to you in your heart about that. This party that Jesus is attending at Matthew's house, it leads to a second controversy, but this one's not with the Pharisees. This is with some disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? More than likely, we, we don't know this for sure, but, but devoted Jews, as, as the Luke 18 said, the, fasted. The Pharisees and their disciples, and probably John the Baptist and his, fasted twice a week. Every Monday and Thursday. Those became kind of the traditional fasting days. And, and there's a good chance that this party of Matthews fell on one of those days. And so while the good people are fasting, Jesus is partying it up at the tax collector's house. And that's what springs this controversy. Well, what's going on here? Now, the Old Testament does actually command fasting. It says that the people of God should fast, but it only commands it on one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. It was required for all of God's people to fast on that day. But, but many of the Jews who wanted to be faithful and, and very devoted um, began to, to make pre- fasting a regular part of their life probably for for good reasons, to get to know God better, to to remind themselves of their need for a Messiah to come and and to long and pray for Israel. But, But as is often the case, what started out as a good practice soon turned into a tradition, which soon turned into a badge of righteousness and a boundary marker that separates those of us who are really committed from all the other, you know, lesser thans over here. It was a way of marking my righteousness before other people, and maybe even more importantly, showing my righteousness to God, just like the Pharisee. I fast twice a week, God. The problem was that Jesus kept falling on the wrong side of that boundary there. He and his disciples are the one who aren't fasting, and that messes with John's disciples. And So they go to him and they say, what's the deal here? Why aren't you fasting just like the rest of us who really care, who are really committed? Jesus' answer is interesting. He tells them the reason is because there's a second party that's actually taking place, one that's happening right underneath their noses, and they don't even see it. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So he says, the reason that his disciples aren't fasting is because they're too busy celebrating with the bridegroom. Unbeknownst to everyone all around Jesus, there was actually a wedding feast going on in the coming of the kingdom. There's a celebration underway, and time and time again, the kingdom is compared to a party. kingdom is compared to a celebration or a banquet of some kind. And Jesus says that there's an incredible feast that is taking place right here in front of you in the work of Jesus Christ himself, and most of them are missing it. And of course, at the, at the center of the wedding feast is the bridegroom, the point of it all. It's interesting that Jesus would use this word to describe himself because this is a word that the prophets would use to describe God and his relationship with the people of Israel. It was a way of saying You belong to him. He is the bridegroom. You are the bride. Be faithful to your husband. Be faithful to your groom. You're his. And Jesus comes and takes that title for himself. I'm the bridegroom. The people of God are mine. Belong to me now. And this is what gets very interesting. Jesus says, how can they mourn when all the promises that have been made to Israel for a thousand years are starting to be fulfilled right in front of your eyes? This is no time for mourning. This is no time for fasting. This is time for celebration. This is time for joy. The bridegroom is here. The point of the wedding feast sits right here in front of you. And then he gives these two really small brief Illustrations. These word pictures that I confess used to be some of the most confusing to me in the Gospels. Now they've become some of my favorite. He says here in verse 16: No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. In other words, when you have an old garment and it gets a hole in it, it's already been washed and shrunk. And so you don't want to take a new piece of cloth and patch it up with that. Because then when you wash it, that new piece of cloth will shrink and pull at the garment, creating a bigger tear than there was before. And then he says... Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The idea is that they often kept wine in these animal skins, these goat skins, and, and when, a, when a new wineskin was being used, it was pliable, it was stretchy, it was able to expand with the wine that was in it. But as it aged and, and, and grew older, it would re- it reach its maximum um, expanding point. It became kind of dry and brittle. And so if you put new wine in there, as that new wine continued to ferment and the gas would expand in there, because the old wines can, couldn't expand anymore, it would just burst open. You'd lose all the wine. And as I said, these these little illustrations used to be really confusing to me. Here Jesus is talking about fasting, and all of a sudden he gives them like sewing tips and uh, advice on beverage preservation or something like that. That seems so out of place. but, But what Jesus is doing is he's actually giving them an illustration of what's taking place as they question his fasting practices. He says, you're trying to take your old traditions of fasting and and trying to earn God's favor with the righteousness of your fasting and mourning over the the pain of Israel and the sorrow of Israel and your longing for a Messiah. You're trying to take all of those things and then you're trying to take the new of my kingdom, the new wine, the new patch and mix those things together and they just aren't going to work that way. You can't take your old traditions and then try and add this onto it. It won't fit. But actually, there's something bigger than just fasting going on here. I think that the way Matthew lays this out, and, and it's a little bit more clear in the Gospel of Mark, but I think this whole illustration of new wine and wineskins is actually, um, it's illustrating a truth that has been seen in the last three stories of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. So three stories ago, last week, Jesus heals this paralytic, but he also says, your sins are forgiven. And what do the Pharisees say? You can't do that. Nobody's allowed to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. That's not okay. And then the next story, Jesus goes, and he calls a tax collector of all people to be his disciples, and he's eating with them and sharing a meal with them. And they say, that's not how this is supposed to work. We don't hang out with unrighteous people like that. We don't spend our time with unclean people like that. That's not okay. And then the disciples of John come and say, why aren't you fasting? Good Jews fast. Good devoted people fast. And over and over again, what you saw happening was the Jews taking their own framework, their own paradigm, their own preconceived notion of what God is like and how faith works and, and, and what the Messiah should come and do and how righteousness works. And they were trying to shove Jesus into that and make him fit in that mold. And what they were discovering was that when you try to do that, just like new wine and old wineskins, he's going to break that open every time. He'll never fit. He's too big for that. Because he's not something that just gets added on to traditions. He's not something that just gets added on to your previous way of life. He is the point of all life. He is the purpose of it all. He's what all of your hopes and dreams and and what all the scriptures have been pointing to all all of this time. And he stands at the center of God's purpose for the universe. He is the bridegroom we've all been waiting for. That, I believe, is the answer to the second question. Why would Matthew get up, leave everything, and just follow this guy? The reason is because this man who calls him is worth leaving everything for. I don't know how much Matthew knows yet, but, but surely he's been around and seen the miracles. He's heard word of them. He's listened to Jesus' teaching. He knows that there is something bigger than just your run-of-the-mill rabbi going on here. Something big is happening with Jesus. There's something important about this man, and he is one that is worth following. I think that Matthew surrounds these two texts on discipleship with all of these miracles as a way of showing who Jesus is because knowing who he is enables, leads to proper discipleship. Let me put it this way. Christology determines discipleship. Christology determines Discipleship. In other words, my understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he is about has a profound impact, not just on my desire to follow him, but also my ability to follow him. If I'm going to give up everything and go after Jesus with everything I got, I'm going to need to see him rightly see him truly see him as he is and what Matthew does in this story is he gives us two critical pieces of information about Jesus what he's about what his mission is and that is to come and and deal with and help the sick he came for the messed up people or as Jesus puts it in another famous tax collector's house the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost That's his mission. But Matthew also tells us who he is. Matthew tells us that he is the bridegroom. He is the one we've been waiting for all this time. And it is that kind of Christology, it is that understanding of Christ that leads to Matthew's discipleship. And I believe that Matthew organizes his chapters in this way because he wants his readers to see this. His readers need to be able to see Jesus this way in order to be disciples of him like this. I need to see Jesus in this way in order to be a disciple like this. Because the truth is, the truth is that I'm Matthew. I mean, I don't don't look it, I know. I had the benefit of growing up in a a really healthy family, a Christian home, a pastor's kid, here in the middle of the Bible belt, and, and so I clean up pretty well. And I have a way of looking like I have it all together. My sins, make no mistake, my sins are not as big or as bold as Matthew's. But the selfishness that ran deep down inside Matthew's heart, causing him to live the way that he did, that same selfishness runs deep down inside this heart. Same desire to get ahead of the people around me, that same desire to be noticed, that same desire to put me at the center of everything, that's me. I'm Matthew. The Pharisees, whether they would, everyone who it or not, are Matthew. You are Matthew. And so the same questions that apply to Matthew apply to you as well. First question, why should Jesus ever call you to be his disciple? And the reason is not because you were a great candidate. It's not because you would make a really good addition to his team, to his kingdom. It's not because you've got your act together. It's not because you're cute or smart or moral or good or better than the other people around you. It's the opposite of all that. The reason Jesus calls you is because he came for people just like you. Broken, selfish, messed up people like you and I. The reason Jesus comes to call you is because you have no hope outside of him. That's why he came for you. You are messy and you are messed up, but, but he comes to save you from all of that. And the second question, why should you give up everything to follow him? It's not because he's going to fit neatly into your life. It's not because you're going to be able to take your own Paradigm for how life ought to work and what God is allowed or not allowed to do in your life. It's not because you're going to be able to keep that and just kind of patch Jesus up on top of it, add him into what you've already got going. No, no, if you try to do that with Jesus, you're going to find him wrecking that like new wine and old wine skins. We don't go to Jesus because he keeps things simple and easy and just the way we expect and like it. We go to him because we recognize that Jesus is the point. That Jesus is the bridegroom that all creation has been longing for and groaning for since the day sin entered this world. We go to him because we recognize that he stands at the center of God's plan and purpose for all creation. We go to him because the wedding feast, my friends, is already underway. And one day, the sky is gonna crack open and the bridegroom is gonna return for his bride. And when he does that, he's gonna unite heaven and earth and all the awful, wicked, sinful things that are taking place in this world are going to become untrue as he restores everything back to what it was supposed to be again. And when that happens, a feast, a celebration, a party like you've never seen is gonna take place. And you're gonna wanna be at that one. But in order for me to, in the middle of the difficulty of life, and in the middle of my own selfish way of living, in order for me to be able to continue on to be the kind of disciple that Jesus calls me to, to continually lay down what I want for him, I'm going to need to have that picture of Jesus firmly in my mind, to see him as he is, in order to follow him as he calls me to. And that's my hope and prayer for us today through this text, that our picture of Jesus would be big, that it would be accurate, that it would be real, and that it would lead us towards the same kind of steps that Matthew made 2,000 years ago, sitting next to the Sea of Galilee at a tax collector's booth. So the way it works at Sunnybrook is is we don't do an altar call. We, We don't do an invitation. Um, song, anything like that, but, but we do want to talk with you. If, if, if as these words are being spoken, as, if, as you're listening to the gospel of Matthew, if, if you resonate with that, if, if, if you think to yourself, I'm Matthew, <laughs> whether, whether it's obvious to everyone around me or not, I'm that guy, Jesus came for you. And there will be men and women down front who would love to talk with you, who would love to pray with you, who would love to walk with you through some of the next steps that might be taking place, or just to pray about things that are going on in your own life. We love you guys and hope you have a great week. You're dismissed.